O great God, we see that through the prayer of Daniel, we, like him, are sinners through and through, and we need your salvation, we need your forgiveness. Lord, oftentimes we don't repent, and we don't repent with a Godward heart. So I pray that we would learn much from Daniel's prayer this morning. And I pray, Father, that this essential grace of yours would be impressed upon us, that we might be known as a people, as a church that repents. That we would not see this as a one-time act, but that we would have lives, lives that continue to repent, Lord, lives that continue to seek your face just as your servant Daniel did. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word this morning for us and conform us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. So it's a pleasure to be with you again. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, as you know, we are going through a topical series of sermons. And just a little philosophy on that, we like to do go through books, and it's a joy for us to have finished the book of John recently. We know that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, and so as close as we can stick to the word as possible, the better. And so it's helpful just to exegete the passage, but as we know, that's not only how it's done in scripture. We see the apostles, we see Jesus himself preaching sermons where he pulls in multiple texts. And so topical, even though it's been extremely misused today, um, and we see eisegesis where people say, oh, this is my topic, I'm just going to find a bunch of verses that fit my idea, my man-centered idea. We know that's wrong, but we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's something good about topical sermons, and this morning we have a topical sermon. Um, it allows um, the, the church or the, the pastor to evaluate where, what could be most helpful for the life of the believers. And we know that God supernaturally does that through just reading straight through whole books of the Bible, and it touches on every aspect we need to hear in life. But sometimes it's helpful to bring up specific um, topics for, to put before us. Last week, Kirk did a wonderful job asking us the, ex one of the most important questions you'll ever hear asked in your entire life. Are you really saved, and how can you know for sure if you are? Examine yourself. I pray that that was a, um, a humbling message for you, and I pray that um, if you were not saved, you're able to see that. And if you are, I pray that you have great assurance. And thinking about the next sermon to preach after that, what would be, what would be a, a natural flow from that, I thought it would be helpful to say, okay, if, if I'm sitting hearing this message, and I'm not a Christian, what are the essential things I need to know to be saved? Or, if I have assurance, if I am a believer, um, what can I do as a believer to make sure that I, that I make my calling and election sure, that I live out this faith, and that I have greater assurance? And the thing that God kept bringing to my mind is repentance. Um, there's so many things that I could preach to you about that would help you in your lives, so many um, aspects of the Christian walk, but I think there's very few um, that, such as repentance, that touch on such a fundamental heart issue that they impact everything else in your life. Repentance is inherently relational, and your relationship to God will impact every other area of your life. And so repentance puts us in a proper relationship with God. So we need to make sure that we get this right, and that we know how to boil it down simply into the main idea to be able to tell others, but then unpack it ourselves and look and see what are the ingredients or what are the marks of true repentance to make sure that we are doing that so we can make sure we're saved and to make sure that we continue to live a life of repentance as Christians. So this is a universally vital topic um, because our relationship with God is the most important thing for us as a church. We can look the, the most squeaky, squeaky clean on the outside, we can be doing all the right things, but if our communion with the living God is not right, if we are not relating to him in light of our sin and in light of his holiness properly, then what we're doing here is worthless and we shouldn't even be here. So repentance is extremely vital. The main idea, the big idea we'll see today is that repentance turns us away from sin and turns us to God for deliverance. It turns us away from sin and turns us to God for our deliverance. Now that is... The, the, you know, the simple definition that I want you to know um, and that we see here in Daniel's prayer. Um, but let's, let's look at those details in a little bit more detail. What is repentance? So if you would, either turn with me or just listen very closely to these three passages. 
I want to do a quick Bible survey on the word repentance to give us a greater idea from, from God's word about what this um, essential grace is. So the three passages we'll look at first, Luke 3, 8 through 11. Christ says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid, root to this, uh, is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so we see that repentance is something that we need to bear fruit in keeping with. It's not just a one-time act, but we need to continue to do it in order for us to bear fruit. We cannot gloat or boast in our heritage and who our fathers were, but we must individually all have our own relationship with God. Next passage, Acts 26, 20. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So we're called as disciples to go out and declare repentance to all the earth. That's part of the Great Commission, is that we go and take the good news of the gospel, which includes repentance. We're to take that out. But what does repentance look like? We see here in Acts 26 that it's a turning to God, um, and it's performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So it should be a heart change, but you should always see an external manifestation of what's going on on the inside. Third passage, 2 Corinthians 7.10. And this inspired the title of the sermon. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. And so we see that repentance is essential for salvation. For us to know that we're going to heaven, to have a right relationship with God, to know that we are saved, repentance is a non-negotiable. It's essential for our salvation. Rather than worldly grief, which... Judas knew very well, which King Saul knew very well, but we saw ultimately led to death. Have you heard the term crocodile tears before? A lot of times you can see people who are upset with the, the consequences or the circumstances, but they still have yet to understand their sin in light of a holy God, and so they are without true repentance. And so we want to make sure we know what true repentance looks like, not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification too so that we make sure that we are making the most of our Christian walk and conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. So I, that, I think that's a good overview of a Bible survey of what repentance is. So very, put very simply, turning away from sin and turning toward God. Be able to articulate that to all those you know. Command that. Press that upon people. I think sometimes we're scared in public settings or amongst family or friends to command them to repent. I think we feel like, oh, who am I to call someone to do this when I myself am a sinner? Or I don't want them to think that I'm judging them. But no, God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so I think we as Christians need to go out into the world with a sense of authority, not because we're important or because we have authority, but because we contain the glory of the gospel. And so we can walk into a situation where people are saying, oh, God doesn't exist, this and that, or, or blaspheming him. And we can command them, you need to repent. And say it with love, say it with, um, with great humility, say it with kindness. But we can, we should have an authority to what we say as Christians because we have the Holy Spirit. And we shouldn't shy away from or be afraid from calling family members, strangers, and friends to repent. <clears throat> it's essential for their salvation. And that's the most loving thing we can do. Thomas Watson has a book. He's a Puritan from the 1600s. And if you're going to go for one book on repentance, this is one that I would commend to you. It's called The Doctrine of Repentance. It takes a little bit because he writes in really smart language uh, and stuff that's not necessarily how we talk. But, but every minute you spend reading through it um, is so profitable. He defines repentance as this. He takes it one step further. He says, it's a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner, listen, is inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. So Thomas Watson defines repentance as a grace of God's spirit 
whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. So we all, those three parts of the definition are essential, I think, and very biblical. Um, it, it has to be a grace of God's spirit. You ask, how can a man repent? How can someone who's dead, like the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel, how can they do this work of God to be right with God? They can't. They're powerless to do so. So we see that it is a grace of God's spirit. Sometimes people ask, well, I know that I shouldn't work my way to salvation. I can't be baptized or read my Bible enough times to to get to heaven. So isn't repentance just another work? No, it's a grace of God's spirit, and it's the other side of the coin of faith. So if you're a a good reformed believer and you say sola fide, that it's by faith alone that you're saved, you're not saying that repentance isn't needed, but repentance is the other side of the coin of faith. If you're going to naturally submit to Christ's lordship, that implies that you're going to forsake the things that don't come come underneath his lordship as well. Are you tracking? Good. Good. So I like Watson's definition here. It's, It's a grace of God's spirit, not our own work. Where a, sinward, or a sinner is inwardly humbled, that inward humility of the heart is what, we're, is what we're going for. God can see on the inside, and when you die and stand before Christ on judgment day, it's not all of the works you've done on the outside that people can see that he's going to look at. He will look at those, but it's most, what God cares about most and what will be judged as well is your heart. And we can't even start to think about the, the external until we've dealt with the heart and the internal, as we saw from Sunday school this morning. Inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. Now, the outward reformation is also vital because you can say, well, God, God has done a work in my heart, but we know a lot of quote-unquote carnal Christians, people who just call themselves Christians, but their life hasn't changed at all, and they're still dabbling in the things that they hate, and that's, a, that's indicative of a heart that has not changed. So we must see repentance as this, it's a, and we can't leave out any parts of those definitions or else this repentance is a false one. Watson has six ingredients or six marks of true repentance that I want us to see in Daniel's prayer this morning. There's so many passages I could have picked from the Bible on repentance that would have shown us a, a wonderful example. I was tempted to do Psalm 51, even though we did that probably about six years ago. But I chose Daniel 9, one of my favorite passages. Um, But you see, and I know it it was a longer passage, so I appreciate you bearing with it. If you can watch a two-hour movie, as I was telling Jeremy, you can listen to a five-minute scripture reading. Um, I appreciate you bearing with the longer passage this morning, but I don't know of any other place where you just have such a condensed, beautiful picture of a Godward heart and a true repentance articulated through God's prophet. So um, in Daniel's prayer, we'll see the six ingredients of repentance that Watson uh, in his, uh, in his uh, Puritan books uh, calls out. He says there must be sight, sorrow, confession, shame, hatred, and turning. And so we'll see these six ingredients in Daniel's prayer. But before we get to that, how repentance should look, we said what is repentance, but why should we care about this? Why is repentance important? Why is this something that I'm bringing before you this morning? And does it really fulfill the promise that I put before you in the intro, that, that it can um, reconcile your relationship with, with God and therefore impact every other area of your life? It can. It truly can. Believe me. Why is repentance essential? I think we have to go to fundamentals here. It, what, what do you think the basic problem of the universe is? What do you think the problem of the universe is? We heard a lot of problems in this election season. You know, we heard things from racism, poverty, lack of education, lack of security. We've got a messed up world, and there's a lot of problems in it. But what do you think is the universal problem of the universe? Our comfort? Our security? No. At, a, at the base level, the problem of the universe is that you and I and the world or at enmity with God, that we, by nature, through inheriting Adam's sin, are enemies of God, the one who's created this world, the one who's orienting it, the one who will judge it on the last day. That is the great problem of the universe, and that is why you should care very much about this topic and make sure you know what it looks like in your own life. We are enemies of God because of sin. So a a sermon on repentance 
um, we need to just talk real quick about what is sin. Because if we're turning from sin, we, we need to have a right definition of it. So very short, lawlessness is a good way to put it. Um, we see that in scripture, that sin is breaking God's law. Not just the negative external things we see in the, the last six commandments of the ten, but even the first four commands, and not doing the right things we should do, like loving God with all of our heart, with, with, putting, with loving others more than ourselves. So sin is not doing those things, but sin also is, as Romans 14 tells us, is anything done without faith. So anything that does not proceed from faith is sin as well. So it's not just breaking God's law, but it's relating to God in a way that it's, it's dead, it has no faith. And without faith, there, there is only death. And so we are, repentance is turning from that. We have to see that repentance, why it's, all, why it's important, is because it's relational. It's important because you naturally are an enemy of God. The moment you were, con- you were knit together in your mother's womb, as David writes, that you were sown in iniquity, you came forth in sin, and even, the mo- even your righteous deeds were like filthy rags. Even the good that you thought you were doing was sin before God. And so what, m- what matters most is your intimacy and your right relationship with the judge and lover of this world. And so we have to see this as not a, a work that we do to make ourselves better, but we need to see this as us coming, drawing nearer to our creator and getting back to the, to the original relationship that he had intended for this world to be in, for, for humans to relate to God, to know him and to rest in him. We have to view repentance as relational. You all get this, right? Any of you who have had a brother or a sister or a parent know what it looks like to to wrong them in some way, to have a break in that relationship, to, to not have the same sort of peace and, and um, fraternity that you had, and you know that there's something wrong and there's something that needs to happen in order for that to be restored. I think we all get that at a very basic human level. So if we get that at a human level and we get that there needs to be reconciliation, whether we do it or not is another question, we must make sure that that reconciliation happens with God. Your life is on the line. Not just your eternal life, what happens after you die, but your daily walk with Christ is on the line. You could be a saved believer, even know most of the Bible, and yet you could be holding on to some pet sins and not repenting of them. And while everyone might look at your life and it looks great, if you're living in unrepentant sin, you are outside of of God's, God's desires for you. And you are, in, you are um, displeasing him and not bringing him glory. And while it might be not immediately evident to you or those around you, you are displeasing God. And pleasing God and glorifying him is what we should be primarily concerned about in our lives. So we see that repentance is relational, it's necessary for salvation, and it's the other side of the coin of faith. So if you heard Kirk's sermon last week in he posed a very important question. How do you know that you're saved? Examine yourself. If you, if you weren't here for it, go back and listen. Um, and there's no mo- better question that you could ask yourself, no important question that you could ask. I pray that this morning you take an opportunity to repent, that you might for the first time have a relationship with God, to know his love, to know, that, to know assurance, to know that you can be his, and to know where you're going when you die. But how about for believers? How about for those who have assurance, who um, have repented, and have been living a life of repentance? Why is this topic important for us to examine? Well, it's important because there's a difference between judicial and relational forgiveness. What happened on the cross and what happened when God saved you is that judicially, your sin had been put away, that it had been atoned for, that you have been pardoned, and that we can read Romans 8.1 and say that there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we can know that and believe that. That you've been forgiven once and for all. And that your relation to God, your standing in him is secure. You can be loved no more by God than you are the day that you're saved. But there's relational forgiveness as well. And 1 John 1.9 
tells us a little bit about this. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just because you've been pardoned of your sin and, and been saved does not mean that you cannot grieve the Holy Spirit, displease God, sin against him, and break, have a break in that relational aspect between you and God. And you do not want to be living at, at odds with God, even if you are his child. I have children at home, and I love them, and my love for them won't, won't falter. And yet there are times when they upset me. And there are times when they need to say, Daddy, forgive me. I, what I did was wrong. And we're instructing them and training them in that way. And I pray that uh, they learn that those patterns early. And Lord willing, one day when God breathes his life into them, it'll be genuine. But that relational aspect of us having a heavenly father and wanting to make sure that we are relating to them properly, that is so important for you. To not just say, oh, I've punched my ticket into heaven and I'm good to go. But to say, I want to live in, with, with, as Daniel puts it, um, with the light of God's face. I want to live before him and have his face to shine upon me. To know that I'm doing his will and to know that I'm pleasing him. We should, the believer truly desires that. That is one of the marks of repentance. Bearing good fruit, as we saw from Jesus in Luke 3, requires constant weeding. If any of you have gardened before, Nasser gets on, I'm a horrible gardener, and Nasser comes over and picks my weeds for me because he's so fed up with me not picking weeds. Um, You're not going to bear good fruit if you're not weeding the garden. And so we have to take stock, take inventory of our relationship with God, and say, in order for me to bear good fruit, I can't, I won't just naturally do that. God has to do that work in me. I have to work out my salvation And part of that work is weeding out the garden. And that's what repentance does. It's continually saying, God, I'm looking at the mirror of your law, seeing the blemishes in my own face, seeing how grotesque I look, and then being washed clean with 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 the renewing freshness of the forgiveness of Christ. And so we need to constantly be weeding out our heart's garden. We can relate with Paul in Romans 7 when he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we feel that tension too. We are often disgusted with our own acts and and ashamed of ourselves in, in how we treat others. And so repentance is like that, it's like opening that pressure valve um, and it releases that, that pressure and that steam of where do we go with, with all of that, the, seeing ourselves for what we are and all of the sin and, and nastiness we see in our lives. We have to go somewhere with it. We can't just stuff it. We can't just forget about it. We're prone to do that sometimes. We can't just say, oh, God doesn't care about it. Repentance is that, that release valve that we pour out our heart before God so that we can be forgiven. So I pray that even if you are the most mature believer and I know that, you know, a mark of maturity is not, is realizing that you don't think you're mature, um, but you would see that you're not a perfect repenter yet. Um, I know I'm very qualified to preach this sermon because I've repented a lot of times in my life because I'm a, I'm a really big fat sinner, um, but you too need to say, God, how can I continue to repent scripturally? So we avoid this, um, and I think by avoiding this grace of God, we are denying ourselves so much so much blessing and so much growth. I think sometimes we wait until a big sin pops up um, until we say, okay, I've got to repent. Rather than on a daily basis being examining ourselves and dealing with, dealing with our sin on a daily basis. And hopefully if we do that, we don't have to wait for the, the big ugly thing to happen to have a big dra- dramatic um, public repentance. But hopefully you, we don't avoid it, but see that there, if we are truly repentant, that there, what will follow is grace. And it is, um, it is acknowledging our sinfulness that can bring God, God's forgiveness. That is essential. So we should not avoid it. Do you really believe that peace with God is your deepest need? I think oftentimes we say, well, God, you know, I need, um, I need a raise. I need more money. I need this person to start treating me better. I need these circumstances to work themselves out. God, please do that, and finally I'll be happy or satisfied. But do you believe that peace with God 
be able to stand before your father and have a clear conscience. That is really your deepest need. To, to say, in all that I do, my thoughts are glorifying to him. And if that is your deepest need and you say, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, then you're going to want to make sure that you're repenting so that you are continually coming before God and saying, God, I need you. Um, and saying, God, I'm the one, you're always perfect. God, I mess this relationship up on a daily basis, and yet I need to keep coming back to you, Lord. I want peace with you, because I know that in having a, a peaceful, right relationship with you, God, I know that the world around me might fall apart. My marriage might fall apart. My job, people, I might get fired. And yet, if I have peace with you, all will be well. I might even die, and all will be well if I'm at peace with you. And so we have to see the priority of repentance, and, see, and we actually have to ask ourselves, do I really think peace with God is most important in my life? Have you seen false repentance in your life? Have you seen false repentance or in the lives of others? I know I have. I think that oftentimes, just to, to personally confess, that I lack um, reflecting on my sin long enough where it actually cuts me, where it actually seeps in. I want to quickly just get it out of the way and deal with it and be like, Christ died for my sin, wipe my hands clean, and just keep going. I also know that I lack the, the outward reformation, the, the actual brokenness and tears and sorrow that should accompany true repentance. Um, and so when I don't do those things, when I don't deal with the sin for how sinful it is, which we'll see Daniel doing, we are doing ourselves a disservice, and we are not growing and, and taking advantage of the, the gift of God's grace that he's given us. Don't be discouraged if you've seen others have false repentance, or don't be discouraged if you think, well, I have repented, and yet I sinned again. Hear this morning that God's throne of grace is open to all sinners. And while you still have breath in your lungs, there's still a, a chance to come before him and to repent. So as you hear some of these marks of repentance this morning, examine yourself in light of them and see how you can repent truly. It's interesting, and I think that we don't like to repent as a people because we think we are centrally good. I love the way of the master form of evangelism because oftentimes it starts out with just asking someone, do you think you're a good person? Nine times out of ten, people will say, yes, I am a good person. And when someone thinks that they are a good person at heart, what they're saying to you is, I don't need to repent. That I have not thought about my sin. I don't think I'm a sinner. I might intellectually acknowledge it, but deep down, I am good. And therefore, when there's... When there's no law to show them, when they don't see themselves in light of God's law, then there will be no repentance. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we think deep down, do we not do this grace of God because we think that we are good on our own? It will always be pride that comes in the way. Pride was the first sin, and pride will, if it, if it permeates our life, it will short-circuit any repentance that's there. We see that in King Saul's life. is a perfect illustration for this. In, in 1 Samuel 15, after Saul disobeys God and doesn't put to death um, and do everything in the nation that he called him to, and he keeps some for himself, Samuel comes to Saul and says, why do you do, why'd you do this? And Saul says, well, it's because I feared the people's opinion. And so Saul places the blame on people rather than owning it himself. And that's because of his pride. It, it, it prevented him from actually owning his sin. And he put the blame on fearing the people. He said, no, I'm the victim in this circumstance. I'm not the perpetrator. And because Saul kept that posture, he lost favor with God. And David was, was brought in to be a king instead. Don't be like Saul. You'll hear, you'll hear the gospel today. And the gospel is what will prevent you from holding on to your pride. It's only the gospel that can pierce the heart of pride and to to help release, help you, see, help you see your sin and help you weep those right tears of repentance. So, with that said, we've looked at what repentance is, why it's essential. Now, in conclusion, let's see, how does repentance look? 
What are the marks of true repentance? And so we see in Daniel's prayer uh, as a perfect guide, we see first sight and sorrow. Read with me verses three and four. Sorry, two and three rather. In the first year of his reign, Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And so what was happening for Daniel to first understand that he needed to repent? It was sight. You cannot have sorrow for sin. You can't confess until you first see the sin. So we have to physically see. It's cool. Daniel was reading Jeremiah. We don't, and so this is a, uh, shows us that the Old Testament had already started to be, um, you know, codified, and that Daniel was reading Jeremiah as if it were the, wor- the word of the Lord. And so we, too, must place ourselves underneath the word of God to see, you know, in order, f- in order for, me, for me to see my sin, I must do the work of actually physically seeing with my eyes or hearing the word of God that brings faith before I can spiritually see it. So many, of you, many non-Christians can read the Bible and see maybe how they've done wrong or others done wrong. But then there has to be a supernatural work that takes place where God grants repentance. He gifts it that opens the spiritual eyes to help you not only see, yeah, I'm bad, but the depth of your depravity. And not only, oh, those other people don't break God's law, but I know that I'm a sinner through and through. We know that it has to be a gift. Acts eleven eighteen says repentance is granted. So just a reminder again that it is not a work that you need to conjure up in yourself. You cannot as a dead sinner, say, oh, I'm going to just repent. God has to grant the sight. And from the sight of seeing how bad your sin is, you'll naturally have sorrow that flows. Look at Daniel's sorrow. He fasted with sackcloth and ashes. When's the last time you put on sackcloth and, and put ashes on yourself? I'm not talking about Ash Wednesday. Um, we're not Catholic anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, but this is extreme rending of his heart. This is this is tears. This is deep sorrow that works its way out into the outward reformation that we talked about earlier. And so there should be right sorrow over sin. Like I said, don't short-circuit your repentance by, and I know guys, we don't want to, we don't, a lot of times because of our pride, we don't want to weep or look soft. And we, we skip this step, and we short-circuit repentance altogether. But have right sorrow for it, not because you're trying to work yourself up, but because you see how holy God is, how vile your sin is, and you, have, and, he, and you should weep over that. You should weep over it for offending God and for offending all the people horizontally who you've offended as well. So you should have the right sorrow, and that will mark true repentance. Watson said, Until the heart is full of sorrow for sin, it is not fit for Christ. Until the heart is full of sorrow for sin and is not fit for Christ. Notice his sorrow is against God. It's for offending him. It's not because he got caught. There's a difference to say, oh, no, I, I hate these circumstances. This is so hard for me. Oh, man, I have to go to jail now and crying about it. Or I ha- but it's, it's a sorrow that is wrought from offending a, a loving and a perfectly holy God. What happens after sorrow? We see here that Daniel confesses and is ashamed. We see this in verses 4 through 7. Read with me. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to the kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. So Daniel is confessing, um, and his confession is for wicked works. He's not minimizing his sin. He's not blame-shifting. He's confessing for the whole nation. And even though Daniel was probably the most righteous man in Israel at that time, and it was the vast majority of Israel was sinning, Daniel didn't say, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's them, and shift blame. But Daniel included himself in this repentance, and he took ownership for it. How often are you prone to, to shift the blame or to minimize sin? 
see here that because Daniel um, saw his responsibility, his corporate responsibility, he, he confessed before God, not just for other people's sin, but for his own, and he included that. We too, as a church, have an important corporate responsibility. Notice in verse 6 that he confessed a particular sin. I know it's easy for me as well to say, oh, well, I'm sorry for, um, you know, for sinning, or I'm sorry for doing wrong, and not making that sin particular. And when we do that, it's easier just to, to paint a broad brushstroke to, to not really feel it, to get by quickly. But notice in verse 6, he says, it's, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. He says what particularly the nation and he himself has not done to sin. So f- when you and I repent, name that sin. Be as specific as you can in when you confess before God so that you might be healed. Don't skirt around it or broad, a, a, a broad stroke but be particular about your confession. He felt a heavy burden, and he confessed, because even though 1 John hadn't been written yet, Daniel believed the truth of 1 John, that if he came to God, that God, and if he confessed his sin, that God would be faithful and just to forgive him and cleanse him from all unrighteousness. Notice that Daniel relates to God, not as some, some foreign deity or one of many gods, but as a covenant God, a relational God that he cares about, that he knows. He calls him my God, um, and because he offends him relationally, he wants to make sure that's right. And because he's seen God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel, he can come to God with confidence, knowing that if he confesses a sin, he will be forgiven. I pray that you have that same boldness, and I pray that you have that same confidence as well, that you can come before God and not be cast out, not be destroyed, but be forgiven. Not because of your goodness, but because of his great mercy. So confession is a central mark of true repentance. And then shame. I know we don't like to talk about shame much. Shame is something that the culture at large has said, never feel shame. Even in the church, we are quick to to say, which is right, Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So as a believer in Christ, you shouldn't, there's a certain shame that you should not feel that Christ has taken that for you. And yet, if we see that shame is an awareness of your sin, it's feeling exposed, knowing that you are going to stand before God naked, that all of your sin is going to be exposed, and that you have been called to live and walk according to righteousness, and you're not doing that, you've done the opposite. Shame, in this case, is right, and it's good. And we should blush. Um, we should feel shame. Listen to Jeremiah six fifteen. the opposite. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time, I shall punish them, and they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So God says those who feel no shame for their sin, those who have hardened their heart and, and, and have a, a hard forehead, those who say, nope, I'm brazen, and I actually glory in the wrong that I did, those who don't feel ashamed, who don't blush, as Jeremiah 6 says, they will be punished by God. They will not fully, it's, it won't be true repentance because they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm going to hold on to a little goodness here. I may have done these other things wrong, but I'm not completely ashamed that I did this. Maybe it's shifting the blame to God. God, how could you expect me to avoid this temptation? The temptation was so strong. Was so strong. We can't do that, but we must feel. We must confess our sin and feel right shame because of it. Why don't we do this? Why do we avoid this sort of confession that includes shame? It's because we forget that we have Christ as our covering. We forget that we have Christ, who is our great covering. After feeling right shame and confessing our sin, what should follow in true repentance is also a a hatred for that sin and a turning from it. We see in verses 11, 12, and 17. Read along with me. The next two marks, the final two marks of true repentance. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. 
and the curse and oath that were written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on, on us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers, by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. And then in verse 17, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. So we see in Daniel, after a right confession, that he, he, he hates the sin and he turns from it. Notice in verses 11 and 12 that he says that this, is, um, that this is right that God did this. I think oftentimes our hatred is with how hard we made our own lives because we sinned. But notice that the source of Daniel's hatred for sin is not that, oh, it, we have it now so bad in Israel and these oppressors have come. But the source of his hatred for the sin is that they've offended a holy God. He actually agrees with God that it's right that they're being punished. He says that because we've broken your word and we've, we've not listened to your prophets, the curses that you stipulated in Deuteronomy 28, the co- uh, part of this covenant, should be brought upon us. And so he actually even agrees with God. And that's how you s- see if someone is truly repentant. If they start to, start to take their eyes off themselves and say, you know what? I deserve what, what I got and all these hard things that I have to deal with now in my life are right because God is just. And, and so he, but he hates it. He hates that he and he hates that his nation is in this state. Um, he says that um, he looks out and sees the external effects of it and he said there's great calamity that's been brought on the nation. And so he's not just like content with, oh, well, we're being oppressed and we're just going to live underneath the, the Chaldeans and we'll just make the most of it. No, but he knows the standard by which God has called them, and he knows the goodness for which they can live. And he hates that they're not doing that. And so he hates also that for the, for the sake of God's name, Daniel is jealous for the glory of God. He wants the other nations around them to look on Israel and say, Israel is reflecting the glory of God properly so that God can be known and so that other nations, can, non-believers, can come to the temple and be saved. That's what Daniel's desire is. And so his hatred is that Israel is not glorifying God like they should. So should be our hatred of sin. It should be a God-word orientation that we hate that we are not glorifying God. That should should be what we are most disgusted with. And what follows naturally from that? What follows, brothers and sisters? It's turning. It's turning. We see in verse 17 that he turned. And he, and he wants the whole nation to turn. It says, Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. So Daniel isn't content with living it ha- as it is, with the sanctuary being desolate. But he wants God's face to shine upon his sanctuary. He wants right worship to, to be restored and to begin again in Israel so that sacrifices can be brought, so that God's people can live in right rest and peace with God. And he turns and says that, God, have your face shine upon us. We're, we're done with walking against you. We want to walk with you. We want to walk in your ways. I pray that that is your deepest desire as well. So what does this look like for us? What does it look like to turn toward God? A few things. It looks like communion with God through his word and prayer. So if you're saying, you know, Pastor Kurt, I'm, I'm repenting and I'm turning to God. Being in the Bible, reading the Bible and being praying to God, is, that's, that's instrumental to that. That is how we fundamentally relate to God. And that is what turning to God will, will foundationally look like. There will be other things, but foundationally we must have that in place of relating to God through listening to him and speaking to him. What, what else will it look like? It'll look like communion with brothers and sisters to be held accountable. So what Daniel envisions here of turning isn't just a personal turning, but a national turning, that he sees this corporate identity of the whole nation coming together and having right communion with not just God, but with one another as well, offering right sacrifices, having the sanctuary be reinstated. So for you as well, when you turn from your sin, 
you have to throw yourself into community. That doesn't mean you'll be close to every member of the body, but have someone who can hold you accountable. Have someone who is close to you. And make sure that they know about your sin. Make sure that they're able to hold you accountable and that you have community with them that replaces the deeds you used to do in darkness because Satan and sin will isolate. Lastly, what will turning look like for us? It'll be avoiding those known idols that we choose to go run to as our saviors instead of God himself. We'll think, oh, well, I turned from this sin, but if you're not turning to God, you're going to just run to another sin. Or you're going to run to something for comfort that will not provide comfort. Or even worse yet, you'll go back to that same sin. Like a dog returns to its vomit, it'll return back to that same sin if you're not turning to God. Know the temptation. Be legalistic with yourself. Not with others, but if you have to, put certain passwords on your computer. Don't drive near certain houses. Don't, don't stay up later than you should. Don't put temptation before you. Those are, you know, there's so many practical little things that we need to keep ourselves from, from turning back to that same thing. If there's someone who triggers us, spend, spend a few weeks or spend some time away from that person so that you can work these things out in your heart and forgive them before you're tempted to be angry with them in their presence again. Turn toward God, brothers and sisters. Avoid temptation. So in closing, I've given you an understanding of what repentance is, why it's essential, how it looks, all of this would be futile if we didn't ask the final question, how do we do this? By what power can you and I and any sinner repent? And this is where the gospel comes in. If I were to leave you now and you were to just go out, you could not do any of this on your own strength. How is it that we can repent and how is it that these marks can be evident in your and my life? It's the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus, being fully God, came into this world you know what? He never had to repent. He never had to repent of the, 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 any thought or action or motive. He lived completely to, to please God. He was tempted for sure, but he never sinned once. Jesus lived in relation to his family members. He had really cranky, really bad family members. They even tried to call him out and say, you're not a savior. Who are you to come to our hometown? No one believed in his hometown. You thought your Thanksgiving was bad? Think about, think about Jesus's. Never sinned once. Never needed to repent. Lived in, the, in perfect communion with, with God always. And you know what he did? Because he loves you so much and because he wants you to have that same right communion and relationship with God, he said, rather than you and you and you, I'm going to go to the cross instead. You deserve to be punished. Your sin has stored up God's wrath in a cup that is to be poured on you, and it would be completely just and right for God to do so. And yet Jesus said, no, I do not want that for them. I want my people to be able to have the levity, the joy, the refreshing fruit that comes from repentance. I want them to experience my Father's grace and his love. And the only way that can happen is if your and my sin is dealt with. That the price of our sin is paid on the cross. That the judicial standing we bef have before the judge, that that judicial standing is cleared, that our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west, and that you and I are put into the Father's presence and are counted as dear children, holy and beloved. That is how you and I can repent knowing that Christ has died for you and that he rose from the dead three days later, showing that death did not win, that he won, he claimed victory over it, and sent his Holy Spirit into the world to fill you, to give you a hatred of sin, to give you true repentance, to give you the same Godward heart Daniel has that's more concerned about God's name and glory than your own. And when you repent and place your faith in Christ, you will want to live a life of repentance. You won't look at, 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 at repentance as this negative thing that is only for really bad people, but you'll say, I want the daily refreshment of repentance. God, make this a practice in my life and help me do this 
this means of grace so that I can be more conformed to be more like Christ. You and I are ill-deserving, and yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He extended that gift of repentance and faith, which we'll look at more next week. So in closing, what's our hope? Our hope is the same hope as Daniel's. The hope for a savior to come and to rescue us, to make us right before God. And we hope and we look forward to the day when we don't have to repent anymore. That we no longer have to war with sin, but we'll be able to feast around the table with God. And to be able to not even be tempted. We hope for heaven. We see that in, at the end of Daniel 9, in verse 23, Daniel's prayer is answered. His repentance is answered. It says, Your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, this is the angel telling Daniel this, that for you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. I pray that you hear that this morning too. If you have repented and placed your faith in Christ, you, brothers and sisters, are greatly loved. That is your great hope, and because you're greatly loved, you can see yourself for who you are, and yet you can be content that Christ has covered you. That you don't have to feel, continue to feel ashamed, but you know you're covered in the white robe of Christ, and you can have confidence in that. And we look forward to the day when repentance is no longer, <laughs> that we can be in heaven with him. So will you do that with me? Will, will we be marked, will your life be marked as a, as a life of repentance? I pray so. I pray that this day you find it as, as a sweet and amazing grace of God that is active in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your infallible, inerrant word to demonstrate what true repentance looks like. I know that we've been burned by others before, and we ourselves have falsely repented, that we've shifted blame, that we've done other creative things, that we've wept with false tears, God, to try to make other people think we're right or to try to please you. We know that all of that is worthless and futile. Father, I pray that you would inwardly humble each of us this moment and outwardly reform us and conform us to your image so that we might be pleasing and glorifying worshipers of you each day of our lives. As we stand and sing, may we stand and sing with joy and glorify you knowing that through repentance we can be clean and we can be right and we can be loved by you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.